Welcome to the second episode of Clauses and Controversies. We're super excited to talk this episode with Gerard Magliocca about the Gold Clause cases, which Me Too and I love and always teach at least one of them, Perry versus the United States, in the joint sovereign debt class we do at Duke and at UNC. And every time we teach it, we always assign Gerard's really wonderful, wonderful paper, The Gold Clause Cases and Constitutional Necessity. So in the 1930s, in the midst of the deflationary spiral associated with the Depression, the US government belatedly, in a lot of people's view, followed other countries in devaluing the US dollar. But the problem is that most corporate debt contracts and US treasury bonds had these gold clauses that called for repayment in gold dollars and defined them so that they were indexed to the value they had before the devaluation. So the government's in a, in a quandary. It's decided it needs to devalue the currency, but this also threatens to set off a, a real tsunami of private bankruptcies and to magnify the government's own debt burden in the process. And then um, the solution Congress comes up with is to abrogate the gold clauses in both private and government debt, and the Supreme Court lets Congress get away with it. So with, uh, with regard to private contracts, the court says it's fine, Congress has the power to abrogate these clauses. And in Perry, the case we teach about government debt, a majority of the court held that Congress did not have the power to abrogate these gold clauses, not in its own debt. But in this really stupefying bit of legal reasoning, a plurality of the court goes on to conclude that even though the government didn't have any power to do this, bondholders hadn't suffered any harm. And so the court of claims where the lawsuit was brought had no jurisdiction over the case, and the government essentially gets away scot gets away scot-free. So Gerard's article really is a terrific unpacking of the dynamic between President Roosevelt, who's already made up his mind he's going to defy the court if it rules against him. He's already drafted a statement to that effect. And the court that's trying to preserve the rule of law and its institutional integrity without provoking a head-on constitutional crisis. So Me Too and I I've long wanted to ask Gerard a bunch of questions and we're thrilled to have him here. And we also wanna welcome Sejin Choi, who's with us. Sejin has been doing uh, really invaluable research for us on the Gold Clause cases, helping get a sense of how the reaction to these cases was outside the US. What um, the foreign press, for instance, thought of the Supreme Court's decision. So Gerard, first, thank you so much for joining us. And I guess I wanted to, to kick it off by saying that in, in our class, we usually read Perry and we're thinking about the importance of law and legal institutions and how the law shapes the flexibility a government has when it finds itself in a crisis. So there's this trade-off when you have domestic law and institutions that are governing, the government has all this flexibility to respond to the crisis and that's a good thing. But then weak legal institutions sometimes are not able to constrain maybe problematic uses of the government's power, uh, expropriation when it's not, uh, uh, not justified by some overwhelming uh, public good. So I guess the broader question that I have is whether Perry's about 
the weakness of U.S. legal institutions or about their strength? Well, before I answer that, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm honored to be one of the early guests uh, on this series. Um, I think that the question you pose really goes to the thought that the Supreme Court at this time has to set priorities, right? The New Deal is pushing a lot of different initiatives their way to kind of reshape the economy, respond to the depression, and so on. And so I think that then requires the court to sort of think carefully about where does it want to take a stand and perhaps uh, either incur criticism or provoke anger, and where does it feel like it has to give way either because of popular opinion or necessity or just that there are only you know, so, many, um, so many times that they can really stand against this sort of an action. So I think it, it doesn't really demonstrate weakness as much as kind of the need to choose, right? That is sort of to go with this thought of John F. Kennedy, right? That to, to govern is to choose. I think mm -hmm. that the court has to choose, you know, is this, the, is this the place that we want to take a stand or are there other things either already coming before us very soon or will be coming before us soon where we're more likely to make a successful stand? And I think in Perry, they kind of concluded that it was best to fold and fight the next battle um, so I, I don't think that demonstrates weakness so much as just the number of different challenges that the government, um, really all sides of the three branches, were facing during this extraordinary period. And it's interesting, or at least one of the things that I find most sort of interesting, but also confounding about the case, is that in ducking out of this challenge, we get this, to my mind anyway, completely incomprehensible second half of the opinion, whereas I understand it, the court is like, well, you weren't harmed because if they paid you in gold dollars, you wouldn't be able to do anything but sell them to the government at the devalued rate, um, which of course is sort of nonsense since the opinion begins by recognizing this is supposed to protect against inflation. Is there no way they can do this honestly like without all of the crazy legal mumbo jumbo that obscures what's really going on? Well, there's kind of an internal and external question there, right? One is what could you get any number of justices to agree to, right? And perhaps this is the sort of lowest common denominator that they could find, uh, that the Chief Justice at the time, Chief Justice Hughes could find. Uh, so that's one possible answer. I think a broader answer is that there, there was this moral component to the way people saw contracts then, especially, I would say, government contracts, that we don't really feel now. You know, in other words, whatever influence Oliver Wendell Holmes may have had on his colleagues, I don't think he convinced them that a contract really was just a promise to pay money damages if you breach. And right. so once you had this moral feeling involved, then I think it becomes much harder for them to endorse openly 
the possibility of repudiation. So some of that is jurisprudential, just the way people thought about contracts then. In the, another is sort of political, you know, that there was probably more of a political feeling along those lines then. I mean, just in the sense that the gold standard had a magical quality to it, uh, not only in the United States, but in other parts of the world that sort of meant strength and honor and lots of good things. And that if you were to kind of uh, say that that could be undone and that that was fine in a kind of clear way, that that would create a kind of either, you could say, disillusionment, crisis of confidence. I don't know exactly, but but some feeling of great dis disappointment that that would be possible. So if you transplant that to 2020, or we bring it forward to 2020, perhaps not those, those interests would not really necessitate using what you've described as the mumbo jumbo uh, to obscure what's going on. So Jared, uh, let me jump in and um, try to sort of build on this. I, I find it fascinating that you say that during the 1930s, there was more of a moral component to contracts. And I think you're referring to the modern notions of efficient breach, where you see a contract as an option where you either pay damages or you perform. And that back then it was performing contracts was more moral. So that that is interesting and that that might provide one explanation for why the court goes down this rather strange route of saying you have a constitutional violation, but at the same time you have no damages, even though all of us, and I, I, if I remember correctly, your article makes this clear, could say, see a way in which uh, damages could have been paid. In fact, precisely the damages that had been incurred could have been paid. So that, that leads me to the question that to me follows directly from the title of your article and that in fact, in more modern cases, people have taken from the title of your article, since your article, I believe, was discussed in Argentina in the courts uh, when this, this case came up. So your article uh, has economic necessity in the title. At the time, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court could have looked to the doctrine of necessity from international law and said, this is the kind of situation that in which uh, we can use the doctrine of necessity because it's an existential um, crisis that the country is facing in order to make changes to existing contracts. If I'm reading you correctly, that's what you say, the essence of the cases. But the court does not do that. However, that is how the Argentine court reads it in the wake of the 2001 crisis in Argentina. And I suspect if we have similar cases arise today in the context of COVID, people would be tempted to try and use the gold clause cases like that today. Now, the question in a sense is, why didn't the court use the doctrine of economic necessity? Was it all about 
the morality of fulfilling contracts. And uh, the second part of that is, if this comes up today, a similar situation, would you think that Perry and the other Gold Clause cases support something akin to a doctrine of economic necessity? Well, well, first, I, I must admit, I didn't know much or really anything about how this played out in Argentina. Uh, so that's, that's very interesting and something I want, will want to look into further. But um, I, I think part of the concern then might have been that if you acknowledge necessity as a justification, then that would open the door, it would be like the thin end of the wedge for a number of other arguments at the time about the necessity to you know, regulate agriculture, regulate all sorts of things as the New Deal was trying to do that the court wanted to resist, right? So that simply may have been too broad of an argument to persuade anybody given what they were seeing in the other cases. Now, that said, I guess also you might say that maybe courts are reluctant in general to endorse necessity arguments because they seem to exist outside of law, right? They, they seem to say, and that's why you really only see them being made openly by elected officials, uh, presidents or uh, mainly, um, who are trying to describe why they're taking a certain course of action in an emergency. Uh, I, I wonder whether judges simply feel that to acknowledge necessity is to essentially say law has reached its end and now we have to go outside of that framework to understand why we're being asked to do something or why we feel that we must. Um, I don't, I don't want to say that that's kind of true in all circumstances, but I certainly think judges would probably feel like whatever they could say that was short of making a kind of clear necessity argument would be preferable, right? Even if it's straining the authorities or legal principles that you have to work with. Uh, so, you know, now, I guess that gets us into the question of like, well, why do we have legal fictions? And, you know, is that really worthwhile, right? Which, of course, a much broader jurisprudential discussion, right? So we could get into that further. But I, I think that it's also must be said, just as one last thought, is that Chief Justice Hughes himself, who wrote for the, for the plurality, was quite keen on legal fictions and was quite well known for being someone who liked to fuzz things up, let's say, and rather than be explicit. Um, and uh, so that, that seems to explain his view. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, you also asked like, well, would Perry be seen as authority today? It is worth pointing out that Perry, Hughes's opinion is only for a plurality, right? So it, it is not binding. And so I think the, the actual authority of Perry is kind of questionable, right? Now, of course, that in and of itself might sort of say something interesting in that the way it worked out is they, they sort of upheld the government's action without actually creating any real precedent at all. Uh, and perhaps that was deliberate, 
rather than sort of an inability to get five to agree. Uh, so I'm not sure then what a court would do with Perry now uh, if that were to come up in some other context. So, I, so let me just ask you, you know so much about this that it's just uh, such a special treat to get to pepper you with questions, the kinds of questions that our students ask us and we just have to flail. Uh, but there were a number of these cases and I am only familiar with a handful. Did other judges use different approaches? Was, was the approach that the Supreme Court used here different from the, the various lower courts or even foreign courts that addressed much the same question? So I have to admit to being sort of on, uh, ignorant of what, uh, the foreign, what foreign courts did with related cases. So that's, that's the first thing to say. Second, in terms of other approaches, I, I think they, they kind of fell more into the, the sort of more obvious categories. Either you could interpret the contracts more or less literally, right, and say that, well, they require repayment in the pre-devaluation dollars, uh, or you could simply adopt a kind of very broad understanding of Congress's authority over, over our sovereign debt, right? And to say that, that that means that they can kind of do whatever they want with it. I don't, I mean, and these arguments were sort of pressed forward in the court. I mean, I think everyone at the time understood that, look, this is going to be resolved by the Supreme Court. So whatever the lower courts have got to say about it isn't going to sort of count for much. Um, but, um, you know, I don't really know much about alternative uh, approaches. I mean, remember, we're, we're still a little bit, in 1935, we're a little bit before the kind of modern era of where we say things like, well, so long as Congress had a rational basis for doing what it did, it's constitutional, right? If, if that were the test, then these cases become easier. Um, but that, that test hadn't been developed yet. So that made it much more difficult for the court to kind of uh, go with uh, a thought that was, we're gonna uphold the government's action, but how are we going to do that? And so that's partly what you get out of the kind of jumble of opinions in Perry. Thank you. We should take a little break now and then we'll get to the next part of our discussion. We are back from break talking to Gerard Magliocca. And I had a question. I think that um, is a little bit of a, a sidestep from what we've been talking about. But Me Too and I always joke with our colleagues who teach constitutional law, I think in Me Too's case, he's not joking, in my case I am, about why they don't just spend the whole semester on the Gold Clause cases, what are they doing teaching all this silly stand, strict scrutiny? Uh, I've forgotten a whole lot about con law, basically everything I ever knew. But it's a everything really comes down to the gold clause cases and why aren't they spending all of their time teaching those cases? And what they always tell me 
in addition to shut up and go away, is that these cases have largely been forgotten and they're not viewed as a significant part of the sort of constitutional law firmament. And, and why do you think that is? They seem like such crucial cases from my perspective, and yet very few people seem to know very much about them. Yeah, and I, I think there are a couple of possible answers to that. One is that they're overshadowed by the other cases from that period, all of the big New Deal cases, the ones where the court invalidated government action, which meant that they got more attention and, and mean that they're more likely to show up in a case book or in a discussion. Uh, that, so that's one thought here. They, they ended up upholding the government's action. So that makes it sort of less, less uh, I don't know, attractive, I guess, as a, as a teaching or research vehicle. The second thing is that I think it, it doesn't generate any subsequent doctrine, right? or really no, no doctrine at all, because partly because of the, the convoluted nature of the reasoning, partly because the issue doesn't come up again much afterwards, unlike what you see with the big cases about the Commerce Clause or the spending power, or you, know, you name these sort of other uh, avenues for Congress to act where we're still litigating that and talking about that. Um, I think the last thing is, you could say that the, the nature of the reasoning, you know, being either complicated or mystifying or however, whatever term you wanna use, makes it harder to, to, to really use it in a classroom setting. Now, you, you, you've managed to do that, so that's, that's really great, because even I haven't done that. Uh, I mean, in my, say, when I teach 1L con law, right? Mm -hmm. um, though now I'm thinking maybe I should, right? I mean, may maybe, I've, maybe I've been making a mistake by not using it in an introductory course and only saving it for like an advanced course. But, um, you know, because I think if you're just looking at a one-off kind of, okay, here is a difficult constitutional or political problem. How do people resolve it? You know, and, and why is it that it doesn't get resolved in the most straightforward manner? right? Much in the way we might look at the Chief Justice's a separate opinion in the Affordable Care Act case, which, you know, you could in some ways compare to what the Chief Justice did in Perry. Um, you know, uh, th th those are important things to think about, but, but because they don't generate doctrine and because it's not going to show up on a in a, you know, a, a horn book or, or that kind of study of constitutional law, I just, yeah, it, it really is something that I think very few people look at or, or have looked at. I am, like Mark, um, mystified about the ignorance of these cases, including as a teaching tool. But um, I want to add one more point to this that has me continually puzzled. And it's a point that Mark and I emphasize when we talk about this case, but perhaps we emphasize it because we're not schooled in the proper ways to talk about constitutional law. And that is that if you look at the history of the US economic 
growth and particularly U.S. economic growth into a superpower that starts in the 1930s, this case is crucial. And the decision that the court made in allowing the government to abrogate the gold clauses in order to deal with a downward economic spiral. And that was predicted by people like Justice McReynolds uh, to be the death of US contract law. He, he thought that nobody would ever trust government promises turned out to be flat wrong. The markets reacted to this case in an extremely positive fashion immediately. And we know that US borrowing costs and corporate borrowing costs also reacted positively. So from the perspective of somebody who wants to know, you know, what value do courts add to society? To me, this is an example of a court wrestling with an issue, but in the end, making an economic choice that really saved the country. And not only did it save this country, but then other countries around the world that were facing similar crises looked to this case and sort of took authority. So one of the things that Sejin uh, helped do research on this summer was to look at how was this case reported in other countries where bonds were also issued uh, with gold clauses? And I had expected similar uh, sort of, uh, similar to what we saw in the US, uh, sort of people pulling their hair out and screaming about this is the end of the rule of law, blah, blah, blah. Turns out that this was not what was going on. I mean, the British talk about oh, this is a great decision because it reduces the amount that we'll have to pay the Americans and the debt that we owe them because our bonds have gold clauses in them. But in other countries where they didn't have that, they looked to the US, and US for authority. And this was not a period of time where the US was a superpower in the way it is today. And so, that was an important step forward. So now all of this is to say, I continue to be puzzled as to why this is not the most important case we teach in either contract law or constitutional law. Well, you make a, you make a good case. I mean, I guess one might say that the description you've given is kind of more of a, it starts to look more like a, a political science discussion of the role of the court, right? And it, it seems to sort of put it more in that context rather than in the, the context that I think most law students or lawyers are comfortable with. Namely, okay, we're kind of coming up with this test or we're applying this test. How do we apply it? You know, when are there exceptions, right? I mean, a more of a framework, right? And this is not a case that really fits into any particular fame framework, right? It's kind of, it's not totally sui generis because I mean, we could think about maybe a couple of related examples, but it's pretty much out on its own. And that probably makes it less attractive to teach, though 
if the question is, is it an important lesson to learn? Well, yes, I think so. Um, now, I guess, you know, the other thing maybe we've got to say is that in order to understand it fully, right, one has to explain a good deal of background information about what the gold standard was and how did gold work and, you know, things that are very unfamiliar to modern listeners in a way that other things that the Supreme Court did even a long time ago, say on matters of race or sex or other issues like fundamental rights, are, are easier to explain or don't require all this backstory. So maybe are just easier to, to use or, or to teach, right? I mean, even to remember kind of, um, well, that for example, private ownership of gold was largely prohibited, right? During this, this period or in the period between 1933 and 19, you know, after 1933, that's a hard concept to explain to people when you no longer have gold as an important component of the monetary system. So it's like, I think some people might shy away from, okay, I have to do all this sort of explanation before you're going to get to kind of what you're learning out of this case. But I mean, that said, um, it, it's, it, you're right that in terms of being a consequential case and a, and a successful one, there aren't that many other candidates that kind of fit in that echelon. We are getting near the end of our time, but I, I have one more question that I wanted to make sure that I got in uh, before we end. And um, so I should say that I don't teach this case in my contracts class almost ever because I can't really figure out what to do with it. And at the end of the day, it's not, to my mind, really a case where one learns anything about contract law. Um, except I'm sometimes tempted to think about it in connection with damages. And I do, one of the things that I'm struck by is the seeming assumption that the remedy here, if the investors had won, would be to, in a sense, their expectancy to get paid the face value of the bonds and whatever coupons they were due. When, and when I look at the the disputes, my reaction is, well, no, they had these crappy investments that were already suffering greatly by um, speculation about their payment prospects. And the only thing they lost is whatever the diminution in the market value is. And as Mitu points out, it turned out to be zero. The bonds generally went up in prices. But I'm, I'm interested in whether there was any thought on the government's part to build a case around questions of damages. It seems to me one could make, you wouldn't know exactly in advance, but you could predict with some degree of certainty that the actual loss to investors, even if they won the case, was not that great. Not because the this, as I call it, mumbo jumbo about you can't do anything with the gold dollars even if we gave them to you, but because all they lost was whatever the diminution in the market value of the securities would have been. And that seems to me to be a, I can imagine a court embracing that reasoning um, relatively easily. So was there any thought, do you know, 
in the governments among the government's lawyers to try to fight this as a question of damages as much as a question of the government's power to abrogate the gold clauses? Let me jump in and add to Mark's question. I don't know the answer to Mark's question, but I agree with him. The, the, the damages question is um, fascinating, especially uh, in light of the fact that the government did plead to the court uh, I, I think this was in Kenneth Dam's article, but it might have been in yours too, Jared. The government did plead to the court that, look, uh, these investors didn't pay anything extra to have the gold clauses in their bonds. They were just sort of standard provisions that were there for a subset of bonds. Nobody was really thinking about it. Some people had them. Uh, the vast majority didn't have them. So really, they don't lose anything by having these taken it out. out. They just got a windfall. They, if memory serves, uh, FDR does use this sort of notion that we would be giving these people a windfall. So they're not really damaged. Right. So I, I don't think that there was a, a, a sort of remedy argument along the lines that you've suggested made by the government. Um, now, in thinking about what to do in the event that the court uh, rejected the government's repudiation, I mean, Robert Jackson, who was at that time working in the, well, in the Treasury, actually, said, well, why don't we just get Congress to basically raise sovereign immunity as a, a barrier to having to pay out any claims. So whatever claims there are, you just kind of uh, have sovereign immunity and that's the end. So you're not really, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the court does. Um, what matters simply is, okay, we're, we're just gonna, you know, not make any payments of the damages until Congress hustles up and passes some sort of sovereign immunity statute. Um, now, perhaps in the midst of that, you know, they, they might have thought more about, well, what would the actual damages be, you know, or whether they ought to go back and make that argument. Now, the other thing to say about it is that I think there was, of course, a political component probably to Roosevelt maybe wanting to make an issue out of this and uh, seeing that as to his advantage to be able to say, well, you see, the court is um, taking this literal view of contracts and is not really concerned fully with public welfare and so on as a way of sort of warding off what then happened later, which is that because the court upheld the government's action here, they then felt more free to strike down other government actions that uh, were before them uh, coming out of the New Deal. So he may have wanted to make it more of an issue and put the court more on the defensive. That is, you know, what's a little unclear is, was he happy or unhappy with the, what the court did? Right, because your your story is oh he must have been happy or you know I mean one way of telling your story me too is to say well he was happy because look how well it worked out right but maybe politically he wasn't so happy and the only clue for that that he might not have been happy is 
that when two years later he decides he wants to increase the number of justices, right, and proposes that in response to the court's rulings, he takes some of, he, his first thought is, let's go back to what happened in 1935 in the Gold Clause cases, and gee, if they had gone the other way, things would have been really bad. Now, you know, that's a, a bit of an odd way of framing it because, well, but it didn't, it didn't work out that way. So why, why bring it up? Um, so one might wonder if, if he was sort of, uh, you know, I mean, the comment I quote in the article is, you know, he says to, well, Joseph Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, who is the SEC chairman at the time, oh, gee, isn't it too bad that people won't get to hear my wonderful speech where I was going to say why we can't follow what the court, you know, follow the court's order. Well, maybe he really was disappointed and he was just sort of, you know, laughing it off. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't, um, so those are just some thoughts. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the, the, this is just, uh, it, it is rare that I feel I learned so much from a law review article, but yours, uh, even on multiple readings, is just a treasure trove of information and insight. So it's, it, it's special for us to have you. And we're going to talk about this to our students. So they, they will get to hear you as well. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, thanks to both of you. And, and when you, I think you may have convinced me that when I teach con law next year, I should try teaching Perry and see, see how it goes. And you can make a guest appearance in a couple of contract classes too, if you'd like. <laughs> okay, well, when, when we're all remotely or, or, or when, when we can do it live. I may need to consult with our finance people before I answer that question. Right. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real treat. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thank you, me too. Thank you.